Tab was saying in saying, when, when I come here to visit Grace Church, uh, it's not just that I love my parents or I love uh, friends like the Lydells who I've known my whole life um, or some other people uh, that I've got to know in the last five years. It's not just that I enjoy coming to visit a few friends. Uh, it's that I, I enjoy this opportunity to come and kind of in some small way reaffirm the love that our whole church has for your whole church and that sense of partnership in the gospel that I cherish and I hope that you cherish uh, and I hope that we continue to cherish for years to come. And so I do want to bring you kind of a, a warm greeting from Aurora, Illinois, where I live outside of Chicago. I do find there's a lot of fascination with this idea of polar vortexes here in Southern California. And so I'll give you the quick summary of what happened a week ago. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I apologize. But you all are interested, right? So, um, so what happened is a week and a half ago, the temperatures plummeted. Uh, we got really close to the lowest recorded temperature in Chicago history. We got down to negative 25 at my house outside on the thermometer with howling winds that took the wind chill down to negative 50 uh, on Wednesday night. Um, and we survived it. All right, it, it, that was, we survived it. Um, and then what happened is the, the polar vortex kind of moved or whatever, and then the temperatures started climbing, and it got up above zero like three days later, and my son came downstairs in shorts and a T-shirt, ready to go outside and play football with his friends down the street because it was so warm outside. He couldn't believe that we required him to put on pants and a coat before playing football in 17-degree weather. And then it kept climbing even further, and by Sunday morning, it was, it was in the 40s. And we literally did have a lot of people showing up in shorts and T-shirts to church in the 40s uh, after nearly a 100-degree swing from negative 50 wind chill to nearly 50 uh, by Sunday morning. So that's the polar vortex. Um, we survived it. It's possible. And this is free of charge, okay? But um, I've lived about half my life in Southern California and about half my life in the Midwest. Um, and I, I have an observation about human character, something that may surprise you. I, I've lived for a long time in Southern California, a long time in Illinois. And what I've discovered is that people in Southern California complain about the weather way more than people in the Midwest. I am not joking. I used to work in a warehouse um, up off of uh, the 805, and basically the schedule in the warehouse was from 7.59 a.m. until 11.15 a.m. The topic of conversation was, dude, how come it's been cloudy every day this week, bro? I can't believe it. Like every day we complained about the weather for about four hours before we moved on to actually moving boxes or anything else like that. Um, and that just tells you something about human character, right? Like it is not about the circumstances, it's about your heart, right? Um, and you all are living proof of that, so. <laughs> Do you want me to weigh in about beans and chili while we're at it? That was fun. That was fun. Okay, can I ask an honest question? Where's Josh and Van, though? Josh and Van? Okay, we got Van, Josh. Does, um, does curry count as chili? Can we do that? Yeah? Did people do that here? Yes? Did you try this? I'm voting for the curry next year, okay? Does my vote count? No? Man. I'm coming for the 26th annual, and I want some curry, all right? Okay. Beans are cool. Not beans are cool, but curry's the best, so... 
There you have it. Okay, please turn with me, if you would, in God's word, much more seriously. Uh, God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Last year, I fell in love uh, with the book of 1 Samuel. And um, uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to one of many precious gems that God's spirit has given to us in the book of 1 Samuel specifically here in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We'll cover the chapter together throughout our time, even though we'll read it um, in a, a couple different chunks along the way. 1 Samuel 22. And, and I want to begin by asking this question, where are you safe? Where are you safe? Um, a couple weeks ago, my wife had breakfast with a friend and she scheduled to have breakfast with this friend because she knew that this, for this other mom, this date represented a traumaversary. It's the date that she knows her child was sexually abused by a babysitter. And even years later, that mom fights back fears and tears and anxieties and worries and a whole host of emotions just knowing that that date is back on the calendar again. I have another friend who grew up in a house that was characterized by physical violence. He has no traumaversary to remember because in his childhood home, it was almost a daily occurrence for his father to punch his mother or his brother or himself. That leaves a mark much deeper in the soul than any of those bruises. I have a good friend who grew up as a missionary kid in Africa. His mom and dad decided years ago that they would spend their lives serving Jesus. A little more than five years ago, my friend's dad went missing. Very likely kidnapped by a violent group. He's still missing today. Never met his daughter-in-law, never met his grandchildren. I have a friend whose uncle was killed by ISIS in Iraq, right in front of his eyes when he was a young child. The memories of that day still haunt him. He remembers things that no child, no human being should have to remember. His mother brought him to America to seek refuge, to find a safer place to live without bullets and explosions on his street. And then in the hallways of his high school, as he learned English, he began to recognize that as other kids saw his Middle Eastern-looking skin, the ignorant kids at his school would start whispering and teasing that he was probably an ISIS terrorist who had come to America to blow up people. I have another friend who's dying from cancer right now. Shortly before his health began to take a turn for the worse, at a relatively young age, after a very successful career, or in the middle of a very successful career, he began running and biking in order to improve his health. Now he's on morphine, and oxygen 24 hours a day, 
gasping for breath, dying from something that has taken so many lives. I lived in Southern California long enough to know that even in sunny San Diego, there are tears, there are fears, there are shattered homes, there are financial worries, there are concerns about terror, there are undiagnosed diseases, and there are diagnosed health concerns. In this broken world, where are you safe? Where will hurting people find refuge? In this world which is filled with pain and violence and suffering of so many forms, where will we find a place where we belong? Our passage today talks about these profound themes of suffering and safety. We'll look at this passage in three acts, if you will. It's like a, a profound drama that unfolds in, in three phases. And we'll begin by looking at Act 1 in verses 1 through 5. Act 1, which if we were to give it a title, we might give it a title, A Pattern of Safety. 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 5. Read with me if you would. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. We'll pause there for a moment as we consider this pattern of safety. You know, a pattern is a sequence that repeats itself, right? And in these verses, we see a pattern that begins to repeat itself and begins to expand and begins to move. The pattern begins with one person in a place of utter desperation. And that person in a place of desperation is David himself. I'm not going to review everything that's happened up to this point in the storyline of 1 Samuel, but if we go back even just to chapter 16, David has been anointed as the next king of Israel while the first king of Israel, Saul, is still alive. He has God's promises over his life. He has God's promises of favor spoken over him, and yet... He's living in this uncomfortable gap in between the promises and the reality. In between the promises which God has already spoken and the fulfillment which have not yet taken place. 
David is living in this uncomfortable place there, and he's living on the run because Saul, the king of Israel, is pursuing his life, trying to kill him. And so David begins to live like a refugee on the run. He, he stops in chapter 21 at, at a place run by a priest named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech provides him and his men with food from the temple. Ahimelech also provides David with a sword, a sword that once belonged to Goliath, the Philistine warrior that David had killed. And then David, carrying Goliath's sword with him, go, continues as a refugee on the run, and he, he runs to the foreign city of Gath. Gath, by the way, is the hometown of Goliath. Here's how desperate David is, carrying Goliath's sword, known as the Goliath Slayer. He has, to, he has no safer place to go than Gath. Obviously, it's not a safe place to be, and so he has to begin to act like a madman with, it says, spittle running down his beard as if he can't even speak coherent sentences. Now in our passage, in verse 4, we see David packing up his family members and taking his parents to the foreign, the foreign place of Moab so that they can find safety and refuge there because he knows he can't keep them safe any longer. This story begins with a man who is living in a state of desperation. And in that place of desperation where David is living his life, what does David do? What do you do when you find yourself in a place of desperation? Psalm 57, which we read earlier in this service, gives us a window into what was going on in David's soul while he was hiding in the cave of Adullam. Psalm 57, I think the words will appear on the screen, begin with this ascription. And maybe the ascription is not is not original to David's penning of it, but it's a very ancient ascription, if nothing else. And it says, according to do not destroy a mitkim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And what was he thinking about while he was fleeing from Saul and hiding in the cave? Listen to these words one more time and see if you can notice a theme in the opening verses. David says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Do you hear how repetition is underlining things for us? I'm a person in need of mercy. I'm a person in need of refuge. And he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his promise for me. Where does David go to seek safety in the midst of his desperation? He goes to the Lord. And in David's life, the desperation of his circumstances lead him to run to the Lord where he finds once again that there is refuge and there is mercy and there is hope and there is strength in the presence of the Lord even when you're hiding in a cave, running for your life. But remember how patterns work. Patterns are sequences that develop and repeat themselves, right? 
And what's happening in this passage is that as one desperate person is living his life on the run in desperation and looking to the Lord and finding mercy, that pattern begins to spread out and expand, right? As David himself is living in desperation and looking to the Lord and finding mercy, that pattern begins to expand out as we see that those who receive mercy extend mercy. Those who find refuge in the Lord extend refuge to others. And that's exactly what happens in this passage, right? It's a a beautiful picture there in verse 2 of what the kingdom of God is like. And everyone who was in distress, this is a word that speaks of deep emotional pain that comes about because of calamity in life circumstances. Everyone who was in debt, you know what it's like to encounter financial troubles of one sort or another, right? To run into those times when finances aren't working the way you hoped, or worse than that, when finances are stretched too thin, or worse than that, when there isn't enough to provide for your own family. Everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, it says in verse 2, which isn't to say... which isn't a description of people who are getting bitter and angry and resentful toward other people. It's, It's just the opposite of life being sweet. It's like that thing at the beginning of the book of Ruth, when that woman who has experienced so much grief and loss in her life says, why don't you just call me Mara, which means bitterness. Just call me bitterness as my name, because that's how the Lord seems to have dealt with me. These people who, like David, are experiencing desperation in their lives. What do they do? They dare to believe that in the presence of the Lord's anointed king, they might find mercy. They might find safety. They might find a place where they belong. So they flee to this cave. And what happens David welcomes them in. Having received mercy in the midst of his own desperation, he extends mercy to others in the midst of their desperation. This is how the pattern begins to multiply in David's life. How about in your life? Are you familiar with desperation in your own life? Maybe for some here, there are really, really deep kinds of desperation that you're feeling right now. You know what it's like to wake up in the morning feeling like your life is on the line. Maybe for some, like David, you can look back at a trail of circumstances that seem to only be going from bad to worse to even worse than that. You've got the promises of God, but then you look around at your circumstances and the two don't seem to fit together at all. Where can you run? First Samuel 22 shows us, shows us this beautiful portrait of the fact that in every generation, the poor in spirit are invited to find refuge in the kingdom of God. 
In 1 Samuel 22, as it shows us that in every generation the poor in spirit are invited to find refuge in the kingdom of God, it also shows us that this pattern is meant to repeat itself, it's meant to expand. And so as you begin to see your own life as a life that is a recipient of lavish mercy from above, let me ask you to consider in what ways in what ways can you extend mercy to others around you? In what ways can your life be a safe place for others now that you've found safety in the kingdom of God? In what ways can your life be a refuge for others who are hurting now that you have found mercy from the Lord himself? This is the pattern of safety that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 22. David is a desperate dude. He cries out for mercy and he receives mercy. And then he begins to extend that mercy to all kinds of others around him. He becomes the the commander of the poor in spirit. The captain of the outcast. The chief of the downcast. This is the kingdom of God pictured for us. But that just so far is all more or less setting the stage for what's still to come here in this passage. It brings us to what we might call Act 2 in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And if we were to give a a title to the second chapter or the second act here in 1 Samuel 22, we might title it a crisis of brutal opposition. Look with me if you would at 1 Samuel 22 verses 6 through 19 as the drama of this passage really begins to unfold. Verse 6, now Saul, he's the first king of Israel, right? And he knows full well that the Lord has anointed David and made David his anointed king, or we might even kind of translate it, his Christ king. Saul knows about this as the reigning king of Israel. He's not happy. In the last few chapters, he's been throwing spears at other people who are associated with David in any way. He's been seeking David's life. And look with me here, if you would, at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree in the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, 
and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. They knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. He killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. pause there for a moment as we consider this crisis a vicious ugly brutal opposition to the Lord's anointed the drama that unfolds in verses 6 through 19 is absolutely horrific and to be sure There are themes moving through the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that pass through this chapter in particular ways. But suffice it to say for now, on this day, 85 priests were massacred. A whole town, including women, and children and infants were killed in cold blood because of their devotion to the Lord's anointed one. All because one priest acting in good conscience had served the Lord's anointed. And when asked by the king himself about whether he had done it, He stood with a straight spine and looked right in the eyes of the king and said, what have I done wrong? You know, one of the things that impresses me in this passage is the guts of Ahimelech. This guy's spine is made of spiritual titanium. 
Where does that come from? That's the power of a clean conscience. This guy's done nothing wrong and he knows it. He has served the Lord and the Lord's purposes. So what can man do to me? He looks straight in the eyes of the king and says, in essence, what have I done wrong? And here's the thing. What is Ahimelech's repayment for having served the Lord and served the Lord's anointed? What is the blessing that comes into his life as he continues to live this holy and righteous life serving the Lord's purposes? The result actually is he loses his life. And not only him, 85 other priests, the men, the women, the children, the infants in the town that he lived in are slain because of his righteous and holy devotion to the Lord and to the Lord's anointed one, to the Lord's Christ King. There's something a little bit countercultural about what happens in this passage, right? It would have been countercultural back when 1 Samuel was first written, and it's still very countercultural in our world today. There's something deep inside of us that we begin to feel, even as we're little kids, that basically says, The storyline of my life is supposed to work like this I do good stuff, and my life works better as a result. You know what I'm talking about? Do people in Southern California tend to think like that? Do you feel these things in your gut? I do stuff to serve God, and my life should work at least okay. I shouldn't do good things and then suffer as a result for it. I shouldn't live a holy life and then find that my life and the lives of other people I care about end up in worse shape because of my devotion to the Lord. That's not the way it's supposed to work, is it? We have this basic belief deep inside of us that says a holy life, maybe it isn't supposed to equal my best life imaginable, but it's at least supposed to work out okay, isn't it? Here's the thing, in math, I'm, I was not a math major, and in science, some of you do science and mathematics and accounting, so correct me if I'm wrong. But we've got this thing called an equal sign. Tracking with me so far? Those of you who weren't math majors are like, I can handle this, okay? There's an equal sign, and it goes like this. Line, line equals, all right? And what we tend to do in our, in our inner arithmetic is we tend to say a holy life equals a happy life. Or at least an okay life, Right? But listen, we need to get this conviction deep in our souls that there's another mathematical sign that belongs in the middle of that equation. It's what we might call the does not equal sign. Line, line, slash through the middle. You tracking with me? And what we see patterned for us throughout the scriptures is that a holy life does not equal line, line, slash in the middle, does not equal a happy life. Doing the right thing does not precipitate your best life now. 
living to honor the Lord does not equal pain-free living. We need to get this conviction deep in our souls. For many of us, we're not living in the kind of crisis that David and his men were living in in their day at this particular point in time. For many of us, we're not living at trauma level or at crisis level, desperation. But even right now today, we need to decide that we're going to get this conviction in our souls before the trials come, before the next bump in the road happens. And we need to let this conviction settle deep inside of us. A holy life, line, line, slash, does not equal an okay, happy, pain-free life. If we get that equation wrong, even if things are going basically okay for you right now, you can cruise along for a while with that, with that equation messed up. You can cruise along for a while and it's all going to feel cool and it's all going to seem like it works. But then you're going to run into something, something painful, something hard. As D.A. Carson put it, all you have to do is live long enough and you'll suffer. Eventually, you're going to run into that, and your theology is going to get tested. Your understanding of how life in this fallen world works, it's going to get tested, and it's going to get tested deeply, and we need to decide in advance, we need to decide here today that we agree with the Bible, that a holy life does not equal a pain-free life in this lifetime. And if we mess that up, we're going to crash into the pains of suffering in this world and we're going to find ourselves maybe at first subtly just saying God I don't get it I was serving you God I don't get it I was trying to live my life to honor you why did things work out like this and it may grow from there into more deeply felt convictions that essentially are ways of shaking our fist at God and saying, God, you're not worth serving. If this is what happens in this life to people who serve you, you're not worth it. On the other hand, when we pay attention to what actually happens in the pages of Scripture to people who love and serve God, we begin to learn to look at life and say, I, I knew from the beginning that living a holy life would not equal a pain-free life. And so when I come crashing into the pains and suffering of life in this world, it's not easy. It's painful. It's hard. There are a lot of tears. But I can say from somewhere deep within, yet will I praise him. I can say from somewhere deep within, Jesus is worth it. In fact, Peter, writing to Christians many years later, makes crystal clear that the coming of Jesus Christ doesn't change that equation in some way for this life. He talks in the letter of 1 Peter to Christians very clearly, warning them that there is such a thing as doing good and suffering for it. There is such a thing as doing good and receiving as your reward pain in this life. But he says it's a gracious thing. In the sight of God. That doesn't fit in American mindset, does it? It's a little bit countercultural. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
And he warns us with words that we need to let sink into our own souls today. He warns us saying, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to be warned by 1 Samuel 22. Don't be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you in the course of honoring God and serving the Lord and being devoted to the Christ King. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you as there's something strange were happening to you. Let's let that conviction sink down deep in our souls so that when we do honor the Lord and follow him and end up suffering, we'll be prepared to say, yet will I praise him. Where is all of this headed though? We need to move on to act three here in this, in this passage. Act three, which we might title a promise of safety. A personal promise of safety. Look with me at verse 20. I'll, I'll say a word about it and then we'll read the rest of the chapter here. Verse 20, but one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, he escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Let's pause there for just one moment. Let's just get in our minds a clear picture of who this Abiathar fellow is. This is a traumatized young man. He just watched his dad get murdered in cold blood by the king. That messes with your head. When the king, who is supposed to be protecting people, murders your father. It messes with your head. He just watched a whole village get wiped out at the command of the king. That messes with your soul. This is a traumatized young man with nowhere left to flee. Where is he safe in this world? Nowhere. You try to tell him it's all going to work out. No, it isn't. It didn't work out okay. Pithy sayings are not going to work with Abiathar. Our little attempts to say, well, things will work out okay. Just give it a little more time. Not after you've seen that kind of not when you see face to face, firsthand, just how broken this world really is. What on earth could anybody ever say to offer hope and healing to this traumatized young man named Abiathar? Verse 22 David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. David doesn't deny how bad things really were. 
He recognizes these people died because they were connected with me. David understands full well being connected with David does not equal a happy, easy, pain-free life. It might, being connected with David might equal you and your whole village get slain. But then David has the guts to look in Abiathar's eyes and tell him, you stay with me and with me you'll be in safe. How can David say that? David can't keep his own parents safe. David can't keep his own life safe. He's hiding in a cave on the run. And a prophet has to come and say, you're not even safe in this cave anymore. Hit the road again, pal. How can David offer safety to anybody else? How can David in any meaningful way tell this traumatized young man, stay with me and your life will be safe? How can he say that? The only way that makes any sense is that David understood and Abiathar understood what David understood. David understood that what he was saying is, if they come for you, they're going to have to go through me first. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And here the Lord's anointed shepherd king looks in the eyes of this one traumatized young man. And he says, if they come after your life, they're coming after mine. And they'll have to go through me first. With me, as long as I'm alive, in that sense, you'll be in safekeeping. This pattern continues through the ages, leading us to the arrival of great David's greater son, right? And when Jesus Christ arrived, he lived a righteous and holy life, but he didn't live what we would describe as a happy, pain-free kind of life. He promised his disciples that he was a good shepherd. And he told them the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And from where you and I stand today, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, I have some good news for you and some bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is I can't promise you a pain-free life. I can't promise you that your life won't crash headlong into horrific forms of suffering in the pathway of following Jesus. I can't promise you that people won't come after your life. After all, they came after our masters. But I can tell you, they went through him first. And even death couldn't defeat him. And now, as a result, because we serve a Savior who has defeated death itself, we really do have this deep, 
countercultural, powerful confidence that can live within us as we consider who Jesus is and what the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and takes it back up again has already done for us. We have this deep confidence that Paul expresses when he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Pause there in the middle of that famous passage in Romans 8 for a minute. What's Paul's expectation? Paul's expectation is that a life of following Jesus looks like tribulation, distress, persecution, not having enough to clothe your family, danger, people chasing your life with a sword. It looks a lot like being a a sheep in this world getting ready to be slaughtered by the pain around us. Well, that's a happy thought. But here's the hope. The hope in Romans 8 is this. No, in in all of these things, in them, we are more than conquerors. Not because our circumstances get easy, but even while we're in those circumstances, we're more than conquerors. How? Through Him who loved us. For we are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things unknown to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope that we have with our great shepherd king who says, with me you shall be in safe. Now what effect should all of this have on us? I think the effect should be something of an exhale. Something of an exhale. Even for the most, even for those of us in this room who have walked through the most painful of trials. A little while ago I was talking with a friend of mine who's, uh, whose name's Steve, he's a pastor And he said, I can summarize the gospel for you in four words. And I said, all right, go for it, pal. He said, here are the four words that I would use to summarize the gospel. I'm okay with Jesus. Now, I've been blessed and cursed with this analytical mind that I have. And so I heard him say, here's the gospel, I'm okay with Jesus. And my first thought was, yeah, but... There's more to the gospel than that, isn't there? Yeah, but there's more that we should say about what the gospel includes other than just, I'm okay with Jesus. But instead of arguing with my friend Steve that day, I just slowed down and listened and I let it sink in a little bit. And as that summary of the gospel, I'm okay with Jesus, began to sink in, I found myself thinking, yeah, There is more to the gospel than that, but thank God the gospel is not less than that. Thank God the good news for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ is no less than knowing ourselves today. I'm okay with Jesus. And as a result... 
despite how painful life in this world is, we can exhale a little bit. I may feel like I'm at the end of the rope with the pains of life, with financial mistakes, with other pressures of life that are caving in on me. I may feel judged by others for where I am, but I'm okay with Jesus. This world may be brutal and following Jesus may prove costly for me and for other people that I care about, but I'm okay because of Jesus. I may be living with a lot of promises from Jesus that are not yet finally fulfilled, but I'm okay with Jesus. I may feel like I've failed my own expectations for myself constantly. I may feel like I've let down my friends and brought pain into their lives. I may feel like I've failed everybody else around me, but actually I'm okay with Jesus. I may have tears all over my face more days than not, but I have this great and very precious promise that my Lord promises he's coming back and he's going to make all things new. And he's going to wipe every tear from every one of his children's eyes in such a way that says to them definitively, I didn't forget one tear that you ever cried. And in such a way that says... I've been planning a long time to do something about it. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he, he tells us today, with me, from now until that day, you'll be in safekeeping. And so, I know that, I know that that doesn't mean that it's all going to be easy and happy and peaceful and pain-free from here till then. But I know that I'm okay because I'm with Jesus. How about you? Do you know that exhale that comes from experiencing his mercy? That exhale that comes from embracing his promises? That exhale that comes from knowing I'm with him? I hope that today you know either that that is your promise and you know that that is your exhale or that at least you know it can be. It can be yours by faith, by trusting in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which is so real speaks not only of beautiful concepts, but it speaks so profoundly to the brokenness of this life that we live in. And I want to pray very simply right now, God, would you send your spirit, and by your spirit, would you bring comfort and hope and peace and healing and restoration and strength to keep on running. Would you deliver those things to our hearts as we fix our eyes on you and rest in knowing that we're yours. I pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.